Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. And I'm the host, Emily Trenum. This week, we're talking about a very exciting new renovation project for Melrose School in Orange Mound. And my guests are Felicia Harris, who's the Administrator of Planning and Policy for the Division of Housing and Community Development at City of Memphis, and Jimmy Tucker, who's the principal at Self Tucker Architects and who's the architect on the project. So welcome to both of you. So um, so Felicia, let me start with you. Before we dive in and talk about, about Melrose School, this is part of a kind of a larger initiative that the mayor introduced not that long ago called Accelerate Memphis. And without you know telling us all of the projects that are in that, just give us the a little snapshot about what Accelerate Memphis is. Sure. And well, first of all, thank you so much for having us on today to talk about this exciting project. Well, uh, through Accelerate Memphis, uh, which is an initiative uh, that the mayor, Mayor Strickland, uh, here in Memphis started uh, this year, uh, through the Accelerate Memphis, the city of Memphis would issue $200 million in bonds to facilitate catalytic community projects that's intended to accelerate gr- uh, its growth by improving on quality of life, driving equity and inclusion, improving connectivity and solving stubborn problems that are deeper than any simple capital budget can solve. Uh, As you are fully aware, uh, this mayor and this administration has really been focused on neighborhood investments. And so the city will like to take this advantage uh, to, uh, in in terms of our drop-in debt service um, in 2027 fiscal year, to make an informative and transformative one-time investment in a variety of capital projects today. So uh, that's it in short, uh, just a, a quick way and a quick win for us to do some of these uh, major projects that we believe that will be moving our city forward. I've been working in community development for really for more than 20 years and have been hearing about Melrose School, seeing it sitting there in the neighborhood, knowing some of its history and how important it is all these years. And just, I never, I never really thought we would see this day, honestly. And so it's just super exciting. So, but, but so for the listeners who don't go into Orange Mound a lot, one of you or both of you, just why is Melrose so important to, to the Orange Mound community and then just to the city at large? Well, I'll start. Well, you know, 
anyone who knows uh, about historic railroads and know about Orange Mound, the community, know that you cannot talk about one without talking about the other. They kind of go hand in hand, right? Uh, Orange Mound is a historic neighborhood, uh, a historic African-American neighborhood here in Memphis, uh, one of our oldest African-American neighborhoods in the country. And in fact, in 2016, it was designated as a Preserve America community because of its long history and cultural heritage and the investments that the residents that themselves made to make sure that they preserve the history of their neighborhoods. So uh, one in which a uh, former enslaved people developed uh, and made homes and steadied the, the, the area. And so uh, Orange Mound itself is very important for that reason. But as I said earlier, one of the neighborhood gems and hallmarks of the neighborhood is Historic Merrill's High School. It is a historic school. It is on the historic registry uh, for its uh, culture, I'm sorry, for its architecture uh, and its long history. Uh, but, and Jimmy can kind of go a little bit more into that, but uh, why historic Melrose is important, I keep saying historic Melrose because there is uh, the, the high school, Melrose High School is also still current and existing, but the historic uh, building on Dallas Street here in Memphis is one in which uh, has been left vacant for over 40 years. And but there has also always been a lot of interest around preserving the building because the residents understood the importance of what the school meant to the neighborhood. Any time you go into uh, uh, Orange Mound, you're going to meet alumni of uh, Melrose High School in general, historic Melrose High School in general as well. And so uh, people are really excited. But uh, historic Melrose has has always served as much more than a high school. It was a community meeting point. It was, uh, as one of the residents told me, the citadel of learning and excellence and leadership. And so many famous people have come out of the historic Melrose High School. And then not so many, uh, and some not so famous people who have gone on to make, you know, uh, so many pivotal uh, contributions to not only our community here in Memphis, but to our world. And so uh, just the history and the culture of the building itself and of the people uh, that went through the place, if you will. Well, Jimmy, I want to hear your perspectives as well, but um, we, I, we should I should have said on the front end, you know, Melrose High School there is a new Melrose, newer Melrose building, and that's going strong and has a very strong you know, student community, alumni. And so people, I don't want people to think that Melrose doesn't exist anymore, but rather that there's a historic Melrose building that's no longer occupied by the high school. And that's what's been essentially, you know, vacant and abandoned for, you know, decades at this point. So, Jimmy, is there anything you wanted to add about why Melrose is so important? Well, uh, definitely, Felicia made a lot of great points uh, regarding the connection to the history of Orange Mound as well as uh, Melrose School itself. Uh, but just to kind of put it also in really a broader context, uh, it was school that was completed 
as a result of the, the New Deal, the Public Works Administration back in uh, the late 30s. Uh, and so uh, up until that time, you know, many schools there hadn't really been much investment uh, in school buildings within the African-American community. So this was a, a major new school that was built and it was completed uh, in 1939. Uh, and so uh, and it had some later additions. So it was a very, as Liz just mentioned, this a very important entity there in, in that community. And unfortunately, uh, it did close in 1979. But during that period of time, obviously, uh, it really played a prominent uh, role for students and families uh, in, in, in the Orange Mound community. Anyway, as I said at the top of the show, um, Melrose has, you know, there's been a lot of efforts to, um, been a lot of efforts to, to try to revitalize it. There's been tons of ideas tossed around and over the years, I think there's been, you know, nonprofits established for the purposes of, of, um, of getting it back into productive use. And, but, um, but it's finally happening. So what, why now? And what were the combination of factors that made, you know, this the time for this project to finally come to fruition? So Felicia, do you want to start on that? Sure. So I want to say that it's been many things, right? Of course, we've had the residents who have been a steady hand in, you know, guiding, you know, and keeping the, what I say, the the interest and the importance at the forefront of the city. So I would probably say that's probably the first thing that's been consistent throughout the years. You know, we've always had a group of residents who've been saying, no, we need to keep this building. Uh, but to your point, I would say that there are mainly three things. We've already talked about Accelerate Memphis. Accelerate Memphis is the latest uh, initiative or plan that the mayor has set in place to make this all happen and to really put the money uh, up to say, you know, now we have money to get started, right? But before then, we had Memphis Heritage Trail, which is a uh, economic development initiative and a uh, centered around cultural um, awareness and cultural heritage and heritage tourism, but for the purpose of uh, repurposing public buildings uh, and to doing place-based strategies around them. But so we had this initiative that's been going on for a number of years and Orange Mound is one of our uh, neighborhoods that we focus on within Memphis Heritage Trail because of its history, its culture, and its heritage, and the, the people there that's really been so invested in keeping that all uh, at the forefront of the city's histories. And so we have Memphis Heritage Trail that's been going on. We've been doing over the last three or four years doing some intense community engagement with the residents around that initiative. And we'll probably talk about that a little later. So we have Memphis Heritage Trail. Then we have the Memphis 3.0, which is the city comprehensive planning of the first one in 40 years. And a part of that, uh, you know, all of everything that's come out of the Memphis 3.0 community engagement 
and small development plans and how they looked at all the various neighborhoods. Then we have the fairgrounds uh, redevelopment that's going on there in Orange Mound being right in the catchment area of it, right? So we have all these and had all these initiatives going on, you know, at the same time, but not any money that was set aside or set for specifically redeveloping historic mirrors. And so thankfully the mayor saw this uh, project as a catalytic project for the community and for the city and decided to, that this is the time to uh, invest some real money into it. So, and, and so that's the short of what I, I guess I can offer to that. Let me ask a follow-up question because you mentioned the fairgrounds. So is the, um, I know that you said the catchment area, I mean, the, um, the fairgrounds area is designated as a, you know, tourism development zone. And so there's some, um, you know, sales tax revenues that will help fund over time, some of the things that are happening at the fairgrounds. And I'm kind of remembering, and I think you alluded to this, that um, when that zone was drawn, Melrose was included in that. So does that mean that eventually, and I realize this this zone won't generate any new sales taxes for a while, but will eventually um, some of the revenues from that help support either the project or the um, the you know the future sustainability of the project. Well, I think initially when you know this project was introduced into that whole frame, that was the thought. However, you know, in recent years, I don't think that the TDZ is least is forecast to produce as much money as they initially thought. So we have been looking at other avenues. And, but we also realized though, when that because it is in the catchment area, there is going to be some byproducts in terms of you know, development and advancement toward that area. So I think that's the best answer we have at this point until we can do another economic study to see, you know, as we kind of bounce back from the you know pandemic and other factors that you know have gone into play that are going into play here. So Jimmy, I'd like to ask a couple questions about the building itself. First of all, the the um, and it must be just I mean you've worked on so many great buildings in your career here, the Universal Life Building and many others, but this has got to be just really. Um, very special to you, um, both. So, so it's a the proverbial mixed use project. So, talk a little bit about what the different uses are in the building when it's complete, and then what some of the um, you know the design challenges have. I guess that's really two questions, but um, you know, what some of the design challenges have been along the way. Well. It is going to be a mixed-use building, and that's a very important point to make. Uh, Felicia already referred to some of the community engagement that, that the project has undergone, and um, that was very important that we get input from the community and, and kind of find out what are some of the uses of the building that they felt were appropriate. And one of the points that uh, community members, I saw consensus among them was that they wanted to have both a use that might occupy the building, 
but also one that would still allow people from the community to uh, enter the building and for there to be a way in which uh, they could be engaged as well. So the uses of the building, I think it's just a great combination. We ended up with a library, a genealogy center, and we'll have a small cafe. And in addition, there will be some, some meeting space. So, and there is not currently a library there in the Orange Valley community. So it's great that that kind of space, that kind of use is being brought to the community, particularly when you look at aspects of just making a space like that available for people of uh, all ages in the community that can come uh, and be a part of it, uh, use that space. So also, as you know, we have the uh, Orange Mound Senior Center right adjacent to that. So the Genealogy Center is just a great additional use because that's a way in which the seniors can uh, share information with the uh, genealogy staff, and we'll have scanners there, and we'll be doing oral history. And in addition, uh, it'll be a great way in which young people can interact uh, with seniors, and, and really the whole community can interact there and have those connections through the uses of the building. So for me, it's just an incredible mix of uses. In addition, uh, we will have two floors of senior apartments uh, on the upper levels. Uh, so we're fortunate, it's a, it's a great public-private partnership uh, and just the fact that uh, those uses, because another important challenge, Emily, as, as you know, is just when you have these historic buildings, you've got to find uses that allow the projects to be sustainable. So uh, by having, again, that combination of both the public space uh, but then a, some inter, income generating apartments as well is another way in which it's, it's a great mix. And I look for uh, the project uh, to have a you know, very vibrant future. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. And I'm speaking to Felicia Harris, who is the Administrative Planning and Policy for uh, the Division of Housing Community Development at the city, and Jimmy Tucker, who is Principal of Self Tucker Architects. And we're talking about the renovation of historic Melrose School. So, Jimmy, just to, f to follow up on that, um, the, I, haven't, I, I haven't been inside Melrose, but I've um, seen pictures, and it, it looked like it was, you know, not in great condition. So what, is that the case? And did that create any barriers to, um, is it creating any barriers to um, the project? That building is very well constructed. So it's got a great structure to it. Uh, it's a concrete frame. So even though there are different uh, deterioration that's occurred over the years, particularly to a lot of the interior of the building. Uh, we will have to remove some of those materials and, and build back with new materials. But the overall uh, structure and framework of the building is still very viable. We will be obviously uh, doing some masonry restoration, putting on a new roof and uh, installing new windows, uh, adding uh, an elevator to the building, 
but in many ways, uh, it, it is very much a sound building, and we have a great foundation to work with. Well, we talked a little bit about funding sources earlier. Um, is uh, do you anticipate using historic tax credits um, f- for this project? And if so, I mean, I don't know if listeners know, but but there's some you know federal his- tax credits available for renovating um, historically important buildings, income-producing buildings, not residential homes. But one of the challenges to that is that there's kind of strict rules you have to follow, which which can cause the project to be more expensive. Not to, I don't want to digress too much, but but sometimes that people opt not to use the tax credits because they just it's too expensive to comply with the rules. So is that going to be one of the funding sources? And so will you be you know trying to use the original windows and all the things that the government asks you to do when you use those kinds of funds? Either one of you. Well, we we definitely uh, plan to ultimately pursue the historic tax credits, and we will be designing to meet those requirements. Uh, and uh, you're, you're right, there can be some challenges, but uh, a lot of projects here in Memphis have pursued historic tax credits and designed to meet the National Park Service guidelines. So we're very familiar with those. We know what uh, areas we need to focus on to make sure we're successful. You mentioned windows, masonry restoration is another aspect of it. Uh, there's not a lot that we'll be trying to uh, preserve on the interior. So that's not really going to be uh, particularly a focus here. I, I mentioned that in the Universal Life Building, we did uh, have a lot of uh, material we retain on the interior of the building as well. But definitely utilizing the historic tax credits to uh, add that to the capital stack. So, so uh, we will uh, do what we need to do to, to make that make that possible. One aspect of I'm particularly excited about is uh, a potential relationship with students there at uh, at Orange Smith Melrose High School uh, that may have an interest in architecture and construction. So we've done that uh, at, a, at a recent project and you, know, you can really spark the uh, imagination of a young person that may not be familiar with a, a, a particular profession and then by some exposure, they may go on and decide to pursue that that profession. So we're looking forward uh, to that opportunity to engage at, at that level as well. Well, just the way the building is conceived, you know, it lends itself to engagement. I mean, I also can't believe Orange Mountain didn't have a library, doesn't have a library. So, you know, people come into the, of course, libraries are different now, and um, which is great for engagement. And um, and then the historic room, it just seems like it's going to, I really see this being just a, a hub of activity for the neighborhood, which is super exciting. Um, and I guess, Jimmy, for you, um, this is, I guess, sort of a minor detail, but I'm sort of curious, being a planner, you know, you mentioned that the, you know, senior center's right there, there's a, a community center, like, it's, is there any plan to sort of, you know, make that unite the campus at all through, you know, signage or through, you know, pedestrian paint on the pavement to kind of give it more of a campus feel? 
Yeah, we're looking at a number of different aspects. Uh, we already mentioned the relationship to the Memphis Heritage Trail, so certainly adding that signage. Also, we are looking at the possibility of incorporating some urban art into the project to uh, activate the exterior of the building, uh, as well as making sure that sustainability is an important part of the project. And so there may be some ways in which we have signage on the exterior that relates to some of those sustainable features that may be added uh, to the exterior as well. I would love to see that because I don't feel like that we've always done that. I'm thinking about like Hollywood Library, Hollywood Community Center um, in North Memphis. They're right next to each other, but they're not. There's no kind of, oh, you're at a place. You know, you're at a place, you're at a campus, civic campus. And sometimes there's little things you can do to create that feeling. And I'd love to see that here eventually. Um Something that kind of you know unites those elements. Um, it sounds like you're, we're we're all on the same page. Yeah, and we also are looking at adding seating on the exterior and uh, some walking areas, uh, uh, new landscaping. And so it's really more than obviously making improvements to that building, but also making connections to the surrounding exterior uh, spaces as well. So what? Is there anything else I haven't asked you about the project that you want to tell me that's particularly interesting or notable? Well, I've, I've uh, referred to it, but uh, alluded to it, but also the fact that it's a historic building. So how do you create a building that's also going to uh, be suited for the next 50 years? So that's part of what we're thinking about as well. How, it's obviously, we talked about the possibility of using uh, historic tax credits and what that would mean, but there will be a lot of new systems in that building, a lot of new technology, particularly in the library and the genealogy center that really activates those spaces and allows people to keep coming back and engaging with each other and for it to use the word hub, just make this a real information hub uh, within the within the community as well. So that's kind of very uh, technology. How are we incorporating technology, energy efficiency? Those are some more uh, aspects of looking toward the future to make sure that the building is uh, well suited for future use. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's important. Felicia, anything, any closing remarks or thoughts to share? Sure. Our goal is to have the building redevelop and repurpose, reimagine to a national model for one that can be, uh, we, that we are very intentional about, we're very inclusive about, and we want to have multi-generational programming and be a destination point that draw both residents and visitors to Memphis too. So, uh, so we are very excited. Well, I'm very excited about this project. I'm sure you could guess, but um, I'm really, it's a, a wonderful thing and I can't wait for it to be finished. Um, I love Orange Mound and 
this thing is going to be a, a huge asset for the community. So I've been talking to Felicia Harris, who's with the Division of Housing Community Development, and to Jimmy Tucker from Self Tucker Architects about the um, renovation, the renovation and the restoration and the reimagining of historic Melrose School in Orange Mountain. So thank you both so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Emily. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the second half of Memphis Metropolis, everybody. Um, this week, I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Charlie Santo, who's head of the city and regional department at University of, oh, city and regional planning department. <laughs> Don't want to leave out that important word, planning, um, <laughs> at University of Memphis. Charlie's one of our regular commentators. And so welcome back. Thanks, Emily. Happy to be here. Hello, everybody. <laughs> So, Charlie, we, the first half of the show, we had, I had uh, Jimmy Tucker and Felicia Harris from, Felicia's with the City of Memphis and Jimmy Tucker's with Self Tucker Architects. So we were talking about the the upcoming renovation of Melrose School, historic Melrose School in Orange Mound, which is just really very exciting. I couldn't be happier to see a project coming online. And, but it's, that's part of another project. Um, it's part of a larger initiative called Accelerate Memphis that I, I'm also very excited about. Um, and I, that's what really mainly what I wanted us to talk about today. But before we, before we start on that, do you have any reflections on the Melrose discussion? I know you had an opportunity to hear our conversation. Yeah, great conversation. Um, you know, Jimmy and Felicia, both people that have been working for the city of Memphis in general for a, for a long time, um, really commendable. And it's a, I mean, it's a really exciting project um, in a neighborhood that, you know, doesn't get enough attention. Um so I'm really excited to see what what's happening there. I love the uh, the genealogy component of it because that I've always talked with students about, you know, when you want to learn about the history of a neighborhood and what it was like and get people excited about what it can be in the future, the way to do that is to connect to the elders of the neighborhood. And, and so this creates a great opportunity to bring in um, that storytelling, that oral history uh, that can really help people think about what this neighborhood was and get people excited about what it can be. So I think it's awesome. I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited about the the greater umbrella of this Accelerate Memphis, which is uh, really potentially very transformative. Um, so I think we need to sort of unpack that, what, what this bigger umbrella is that the, the historic Melrose Project falls under. I agree. So Accelerate Memphis was announced by Mayor Strickland in January of this year, and it's a $200 million effort to improve neighborhoods. I think it's actually Accelerate Memphis colon 
something related to neighborhoods. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I'm not not as prepared as I should be. Invest in neighborhoods. Invest in neighborhoods. Exactly. So, um, and that's, that money is allocated into three buckets. One of them is, and, and it's, it's, um, it's financed through some bonds that are going to be issued. And I want to talk more about that in a minute. But the reason I'm mentioning it now is because the first bucket is a bucket called revitalizing city assets. And the things that are in that bucket are things that you I traditionally think of as things that bonds, bond funding from bonds would support. Renovating AutoZone Park, improvements to Mud Island, improvements to FedEx Forum, um, some of the costs associated with acquiring and renovating the 100 North Main building. And actually, Melrose School is in this bucket as well. And probably one of the reasons is because it's there's going to be a library there. So that's kind of, that's the first bucket, revitalizing existing city assets. There's a bucket that is um, for park improvements. And a lot of that is going to uh, community centers, park improvements. And then the third bucket, that, and the first bucket of revitalizing city assets, it's $50 million. The, the parks bucket is $75 million. And then the third bucket, also $75 million, is called activating neighborhoods. And there's a lot of things that fall under this. One is small area planning that's going to support the um the three Memphis 3.0 comprehensive planning that we've talked about earlier. And we'll talk about that later in the discussion Um, support for neighborhood anchors, which is those, you know, places and intersections in the neighborhoods that need investment. There's a portion of that going to housing and then a portion of that money is going to broadband, which is also needed. So like I said, on the front end, um, this is about, you know, someone who I think um, neighborhoods is my thing. Okay. And so this is nothing that has happened in Memphis from a neighborhood perspective has gotten me as happy and excited and optimistic as this, uh, this Accelerate Memphis is. And I'm a, that, that's saying something because I'm jaded. <laughs> but this is this overall is wonderful news so i want to unpack it as you said but first of all talk a a little bit about the the funding the 200 million dollars it's going to support this yeah i mean 200 million dollars is 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 not a small amount right that's a big investment in all kinds of stuff um and the the focus on neighborhoods is is something that's really special that we'll that we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, so two hundred million dollars. Where does this money come from? Right, it's not like we're going out and collecting this money um, through a bake sale. <laughs> so so two hundred million dollars is it's going to come from bonds. Um, and we've talked about this, I think, on previous shows. But bonds are basically like the city's credit card. Uh, it's a debt. Um, so you know, a city has multiple types of budgets. Uh, we've got the general fund, which is kind of the primary budget. The general fund is kind of like your the household checking account. So the city gets income mostly from property tax. Uh, that goes into our checking account. We spend that on things like salaries for police officers and for teachers. 
And then we have separately this capital improvement budget, and that's for big ticket items, big infrastructure things. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So those big ticket items, infrastructure, those are essentially paid for on credit. So it's like when a family buys a house or a new car, right? You don't have the $20,000 for a new car up front, so you put it on credit. Well, the city doesn't use a credit card like you would for a household. They, they issue bonds. And so, yeah, you alluded to this, that normally when we think about bonds, we're thinking about things like baseball stadiums, right? So if the city wants to invest, uh, build a new $500 million baseball stadium or basketball arena, they don't have that in the checking account, right? So they sell bonds and people buy these bonds $50 at a time, $100 at a time, $5,000 worth in, until the city has has sold $500 million worth. Um and of course, they pay those investors back over time, typically over 30 years with interest. That interest that's paid annually, that's called the debt service, right? That's what the, that's what the, the, the city is repaying each year on those bonds. So what's happened is that right now, the city of Memphis is spending about $160 million annually on debt service for past capital improvements. But coming up in, in 2026, a bunch of our old projects, our old debt is going to be paid off. And so that annual debt service is going to drop a lot. It's going to drop from 160 million to 90 million. So right now we're paying that debt service back. We're using income from property taxes and other revenue sources to pay that back. When that debt service drops in five years in 2026, we could say, all right, we no longer need to collect all that in property taxes. We can cut our property taxes or we could keep that essentially keep that monthly credit card payment the same and add new debt service. And so that's what this plan is doing. It's $200 million in new debt service that's kind of replacing stuff that's coming off the books, um, which to me, this is kind of a bold step, right? From to, be, to becoming from Mayor Strickland to, to who to me seems to be the kind of mayor that wants to appeal to, to fiscal conservatives is someone who is tends to be pretty cautious uh, to say, you know what, we're going to put a, a, a whole new debt issue out there and it's not going to impact your taxes because we're, we're removing old debt, replacing it with new debt uh, on all these new projects. It's bold uh, and it's, you know, it's legacy building. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm hopeful about it because it's investment in parks. It's restoring civic assets. It's using public resources to, to support neighborhoods and it's implementing a comprehensive plan, which is what the public sector is supposed to do. Well, I agree. I do think it, there, it's, it shows um, bold leadership. But I think it will, even though a lot of these investments are not, I realize these are not what you would call revenue bonds where you're expecting um, you know, revenues for whatever project you're financing to actually pay it back. I realize don't, these don't fall into that category. Having said that, you know, I believe these investments will be profitable for the city. And while I think on some level, on the face of it, we wouldn't necessarily think it fiscally conservative. Of course, I'm biased, but I think these are very, I think these are very sound investments. Yeah, I mean, I do too. Um, which maybe maybe I'm jaded too, because I, I'm surprised <laughs> that we're making these sound investments. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, I can I can talk about that from a place of sort of analysis that, um, you know, 
So to me, this is the public sector doing what the public sector should do, which we typically really don't see in American cities uh, anymore. Um, and even, you know, even when Memphis launched 3.0, the comprehensive plan, there was still some skepticism around whether we were really going to see some, some change here or whether we're just kind of going through the motions and, and, you know, what was the role of the corporate elite in all this? And is this for real? Uh, and so as an academic, you tend to look at these kind of things through a critical lens and not, not just for the sake of being critical, but for, for being able to talk about what is happening in practice uh, and how that relates to theory and bigger discussions in the field. And so, you know, I wrote about this, some, some colleagues and I wrote about this, about Memphis 3.0 and the skepticism about it and what it actually meant uh, a couple of years ago when this was, was being launched. Um, and this was in a, a, a special issue of this international journal called the Journal of International Planning Studies. And the special issue was focused on planning amid crisis and austerity, right? So this is this kind of a European journal. Uh, and the special issue was really about the impact of the 2008 recession on the public sector and resulting austerity. And I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes because it's jargon that I'm going to explain. <laughs> oh, made me ring my bell. <laughs> no, I, I've got more coming up too. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, in 2008, 2009, post-recession in Europe, there was there were a lot of things specifically labeled as austerity measures. And these are kind of big cutbacks on public budgets. So elimination of public services, um, and so we saw this, this invitation to, to write in this journal as an opportunity to talk about Memphis as a typical American city for which public sector austerity is, is not new, right? This is not a post-recession phenomenon. That term austerity doesn't have the same connotation in the, in the U.S. as it does in Europe. So in, in the European context, that post-recession neoliberal austerity measures um, have created this sort of what they would call a, a post-political context, uh, again, in air quotes. Uh, so post-political meaning that, so the, the, the erasure of the public or the vacuum of the public, the public meaning a space for real democratic processes and conflict and debate um, about decisions that affect public space and public life, as well as the erasure of the public, where public means public sector capacity to intervene via social, economic, physical transformations. Um, and that's not new in, in the U.S. It's not new in, in, in Memphis. You know, in, in the U.S., planning has, has for a long time been kind of market-oriented and driven by maximizing land value and, and responding to the real estate development. So we saw this as a way to talk about the story of Memphis as a city that, that sort of represents all those things that are typical in the U.S. And what does Memphis 3.0 mean? Is it a real turning point or is it a kind of a continuation of the norm, the status quo in, in disguise? Well, I mean, and in Memphis, we just didn't, and we didn't do any planning for years before. I mean, I mean, I think there's always skepticism about a plan like Memphis 3.0 because we've all heard and seen the proverbial plan that sits on the desk and gathers dust because there's no resources to implement it. But Memphis wasn't even bothering to do the dust gathering plans. <laughs> we weren't planning at all. Yeah, we had stopped. We had stopped planning in 1983, right? Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of the story that we, we told in this research is that, you know, at least up into 2017, Memphis planning and community development was characterized by, as you described, this kind of this bare bones public planning office with, with almost no capacity to really direct development, 
we had the the single powerful bureaucrat and Robert Lipscomb who was controlling all the resources, really mostly deploying them to benefit real estate interests. Um, any kind of efforts at grassroots organizing was kind of silenced by private interests. And at that point, I mean, even even philanthropy, which kind of stepped in to fill the void, was kind of looking like we could do more without public planning or a public planning function. And then in 2016, 2017, we launched this comprehensive planning process. And so those of us who are sort of studying this sort of thing are asking, can we really go from from where we were to a real public planning function? Uh, or is this kind of a fake, fake hope, false hope? Uh, and so that skepticism comes from not only knowledge of what has happened in the past, but as we were examining this, when, when Memphis 3.0 was being launched, there wasn't any public funding in it. It was, it was private funding coming from mostly from large philanthropy and from corporate interests, Memphis Tomorrow, right? All of our CEOs. And so that's this kind of a common post-political critique is that we were creating this fake democracy, but really concentrating decision-making in the hands of, uh, of corporate elites. Uh, and so we were trying to unpack that. And I think what we came to at the end of the day was that this is real. Like we're really doing public planning. It's coming out of the mayor's office. There's a real public planning process. At the end of it, we created a, an actual comprehensive planning staff that's actually in the budget. Um, and now it, it continues to emerge with, with Accelerate Memphis. There's an actual focus on implementation and money behind it. So it really does tell the story that, hey, we really are turning this around, coming from a place that's really hard to come back from. Well, and I think that the um, the real is, you know, I'm sure there was the foundation on some level for the political decisions had to be that the there was no way that any kind of real progress was going to be made through traditional funding sources, especially when we're coming out of a pandemic and um, probably there'll be, you know, hits to the budget from that. And there's just not, there's, like I said, there's just no way that the city historically has put very little of um, its own money into neighborhood revitalization projects. And I've been critical about that, but there just, there hasn't been much money. Yeah. And it's, it's really an interesting, um, I don't know if it's a paradox that, that so much private funding and philanthropic funding was put into this public effort. Um, I mean, you can think of it that way, but it's, you know, you can view it through a, a, a critical neoliberal lens and say, this is BS, right? This is just the corporate interests. But I think the reality is that there was no public, like the, the public in terms of public discourse and decision-making about public space had been, there had been such a vacuum that you saw this sort of private interest folks and in, in big philanthropy coming in and saying, we need to create this thing. We need, we need a public sector. Um, and so, you know, they, they up, up front, they kind of front loaded it. And, and now it's part of the, the actual public sector budget. And yeah, like you said, it, it, we did this plan and then a pandemic hit, right? And so it would have been easy for the administration to say, hey, we nothing we can do about it, right? The budget's sunk because of the pandemic. But um, to to the administration's credit, they said, we're going to find a way to, to fund some of this. And so I think this kind of 
bold, innovative approach to saying, hey, we've got some room in the debt service now. Uh, we can create a fund and not really create any increase in, in tax burden. Um, it's commendable. So let's uh, drill down on the the 3.0 implementation a little bit, because um, one of the things that Accelerate Memphis is going to fund, so so Memphis 3.0, the comprehensive plan, which we talked about before, is sort of a roadmap for development and investment in the city. One of the things the plan did was um, to identify in every neighborhood some kind of an anchor where it would make sense to invest. And that could be, you know, a, a, some neighborhoods had multiple anchors. It could be sort of a busy intersection. It could be a location where there was both the community center and a library with the thinking that um, with limited dollars uh, to spend, that it makes sense for public money to start somewhere. And so one of the things this money is going to be, and but each of those anchors needs a little needs. I mean, that's one of the things about planning, you know, planning, planning implementation requires more planning. And so each of these nodes anchors is going to need a plan and to, to guide what specific investments. So that's part of um, what this accelerate Memphis is going to pay for. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, for for our students, it's it's nice for them to have an example of good planning happening live, um, because you're right. It's you know so often you see a plan created, um, and here's what we want to do. Here's what we want the future to look like, uh, and then boom, it goes on the shelf, right? Um, but in this case, this was set up so that we have broad goals that are kind of citywide goals, build up, not out, right? Which means we want to invest in existing neighborhoods, strengthen existing neighborhoods, and sort of stop this pattern of developing at the edges and pushing outward. Um, so that's kind of a broad thing. And then you have it divided down into individual district plans. So you break the city down into planning districts. And then within those districts, there's this anchor strategy, right? So there was a planning process for each of those districts where residents identified the places where things are happening or where things used to be happening that they want to get back to or where they want to see things happening in the future. And those are the anchors. I mean, anchors is a term, but really what it means is a place that's important to people that live there. They have some connection to it for whatever reason. Uh, and then those anchors were identified as nurture anchors, which means that they really need some large amount of help from the public sector or accelerate more sustain right on this sort of this sort of spectrum um and so then not only do you have the broad goals and then and then the district goals and the district anchors to operate to operationalize those anchors and nurturing and accelerating them the next step is that next plan as you said so there are small area plans being developed around these anchors and that's what this funding is going to that the one of the buckets is activating neighborhoods or activating Memphis 3.0, right? So it's, we've identified in the plan anchors that are important, and now here's some resources to do some things in those anchors. And then once you have the small area plans done, you can actually start to implement. So at the corner of, I'm making this up. I think I, th Walker, right? I think well, I think Jimmy Tucker in the Melrose. Um, and I don't remember if he said this in the interview that we recorded or afterward that he, I think he's working on a, 
on a small area plan for Chelsea and North 7th, I mm-hmm. believe. So you do a small area plan. Okay, then, okay, here's what the community wants to do there. We want a pocket park or this building needs to be acquired and redeveloped, or we really need some more single family housing. Then this, not only are there funds to do that, but the city can re can deploy existing funding sources, whether it's transportation or um, to those specific um outcomes that are identified in the plan. Yeah. And if you look at the document, um, which we'll, uh, we'll link in the show notes, I'm sure the Accelerate Memphis plan. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, but yeah, the, the section on activating Memphis 3.0 lists out the anchor areas that we're talking about and it's specific intersections. I mean, things that are recognizable. And to me, what's exciting about it is that we're talking about investing in neighborhoods all over the city, right? So there's some stuff in the plan that's AutoZone Park and FedEx Forum and 100 North Main. But, you know, we're talking about Summer and Graham, Macon and Victor, uh, Lamar and McLean, Ridgeway and Quince, right? Places where we we have not seen the city using its own budget to invest in things um, in, uh, in, in any time I can remember. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting. It's, it's, we created a plan, we followed a process, we're drilling it down, and now there's resources to implement things. Um, and as long as this is carried out in a way where these small area plans are really built on community input, uh, I mean, this is a pretty exciting thing. I mean, this is there's a reason that this Memphis 3.0 won the American Planning Association's Daniel Burnham Award for a Comprehensive Plan because it sets up a process like this. And if we can follow it through, you know, it's like Memphis going from being the worst city for biking uh, in the country to being the most improved. So if we could, if there was a similar award for planning, we're, we're maybe on that path, which I think is super exciting. Well, plus I feel like there's, as you said, there's a, a little, there's kind of a, a something for everybody. And I mean, sometimes that can be a criticism, but mm-hmm. I do think that, um, I think that's a good thing in this case. There's a there's, you know, seventy five million dollars is allocated to you know parks and community centers, and that includes some big projects like um, you know Gaston Community Center, Ed Rice Community Center, which are you know have much long delayed overhauls needed. But the and, and I'm hoping to do a program on this. You know, the Division of Parks and Neighborhoods has just completed a master plan for parks. And so my expectation is that some of these funds will be deployed in those ways. And I'm some of that I haven't I have looked at the plan. I haven't completely drilled down, but I'm guessing some of it is, you know, a new playground equipment in Williamson Park. I mean, that's what, that's the kind of thing we need to improve everybody's quality of life. The, the little, the big things, but the little things too. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is literally the the $75 million for parks includes a lot of basic playground updates. I mean, some of the stuff in the plan is, is high level. We don't know what the details are yet. Uh, but some of it's pretty specific and a lot of the park stuff is that identifies specific parks and talks about playground upgrades or creating a splash pad 
there's a lot of green line stuff. Not only, I mean, there's stuff for the Shelby Farms green line, but we're talking about the South Memphis green line. We're talking about the Heights line. Um, actually, you know, that that's a plan that came together through the work of a very active community development corporation and community input that said, hey, here's something we want to do on this on this strip of uh, median along National Street. Um, and now the city is actually using city resources to, to actually implement that. Um, pretty, pretty cool stuff. So Charlie, I know we we're, we're kind of out of time, but, but, um, and I know we've, you and I have talked a lot about transit mm-hmm. in the show and the need for transit system improvements. And this doesn't, uh, none of these directly support that as far as I know, as you said, it's still kind of high level, but do you see any, um, aside from the green lines, do you see anything in this that could potentially, um, improve sort of transportation, the transportation system in Memphis? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my, my one critic. Well, one of my criticisms, um, you know, the anchors themselves are designed or are part of the criteria for selecting anchors are density and whether they uh, intersect with high frequency transit. And so some of these are going to be transformations happening in places where transit makes sense. Um, I mean, there could have been a, a, another world in which the administration identified, hey, we have an opportunity to create $200 million worth of new infrastructure funding. Uh, because of this this debt service cliff that's coming up, and let's invest it all in transit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you can you can quibble with with that, but I mean, I you know, we have a we have a plan that was created; it needs to be implemented, and, and this is a way to do it. So, um, whether there's opportunities to do more with transit, yeah, probably, <laughs> but. I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna look a, a gift horse in the mouth. This is, we're we're doing a good thing here. Oh well, yeah, and and um, for sure. I mean, definitely, it's not perfect, and um, but but it's a huge step in the right direction. So, and and there's so many great individual projects in there. There's a lot of future topics for Memphis Metropolis shows. There you go. <laughs> Besides Melrose. Yeah, I mean, one is, for example, like this has people talking, right? So uh, on Facebook, I got looped into this sort of conversation. Um, one of our council members, Michael and Easter Thomas, is talking about, all right, where's our where's our walkable black entertainment district? And 138 comments, a lot of them talking about, hey, let's look at the things that are in this Accelerate Memphis plan related to places like Soulsville, and is there an opportunity for that here? So uh, it's got people excited. That's great. That's really great. Okay, Charlie Santo, one of our commentators, University of Memphis City Regional Planning, thank you for coming back. You bet. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.